Well, here's uh, my general observation is people seem to like Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, generally people are for Jesus. You know, you think of any other leader who leads today, you know, some are going to love him and some are going to hate him. But Jesus is different. It seems like everybody likes Jesus, right? I, everybody, I don't see any memes criticizing Jesus. In fact, uh, if you want to, if you're trying to, you know, everyone, how do I want to say this? If you want, if you're about something, you want Jesus on your team. If you have a cause, you want to find a way that Jesus can agree with you and you use him to support your cause, to join your team. In fact, what I notice, even people that know very little about Jesus or aren't really acquainted with much about him, if they want to uh, argue for something or represent something, they will quite often quote Jesus and say, Jesus is with me. He's on my team. If you're involved in medical ministry and want to help the poor, People say, you know, Jesus uh, cared for the sick. He cared for the material poor. If you want to help people that maybe are suffering from injustice or addictions or in prisons, we say, you know, Jesus was for these people. And so therefore, we should be for them as well. And I've just named a couple of things, but the list goes on and on. There are many things that we know that Jesus was involved in or talked about or supported. And so if we like that cause or if we're passionate about that, we want to say, Jesus, you know, he's on our side. He's on my team. He agrees with me. But even as I say all of those things, you can go sort of two different ways with this idea. One is, even as if I was to make the list longer of the things Jesus is for, here, here's what you would all come to know at some point, is Jesus can't be for everything, right? That's one way we could have a discussion here. There's got to be some things Jesus is not for. In fact, you could choose two opposite things and say, which one of these is Jesus for or not? That's one way we could go with the discussion. But the other way is this. In the midst of all the things we know Jesus cared about and was for generally, what would be the number one thing? What would be the main priority of Jesus? What, what would be the, the top thing that he really cared most about? And in fact, in some ways, we'd say, once we know that, then that puts everything else in context. That helps us understand all of the other things. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, as I think about myself, um, I'm thinking about about every six weeks on a Friday afternoon, it gets slow around here. It just sort of happens four, five, six weeks. And my office is over here, and I'll be working back there on the computer. The building's fairly quiet, and if I need a little break from staring at the computer, here's what I'll do. I'll wander out to the atrium. There's not many people here, and I'll spend about five minutes just tidying up the church. I'm not looking for any applause in this. It's not a great thing. I just, you know, things get left around, and I go, and I pick them up, and I put them in the lost and found, or quite often I pick them up, and I put them on Pat's desk and sort of say, Pat, we don't know what this is. Could you just sort of take care of that? That's my ministry. Uh, and, uh, and again, we, you know our building is all cleaned by volunteers, and so that's my little bit to help out that. It's not anything great at all. But I do that about every six weeks or so. Now, knowing that, if you were to come in here one Friday with a friend who did not know me and did not know Harbor, and you were bringing them to the church, and you saw me doing my five minutes of tidying, uh, for my one in six week routine or so, whatever it is. And you then introduced your friend to me and said, oh, this is Jeff. He tidies around the church. And I said, oh, yes, nice to meet you. Yeah, I do it for five minutes every six weeks. And your friend said, oh, that's nice, nice to meet you. And you walked away. That would have been a totally true conversation. 
No lie would have occurred in that. You would have known a fact about me that I tidy around the church. But here's what you know and I know. You wouldn't really know me. You wouldn't really know what I'm about around here. And you probably really wouldn't know much about Harbor if that's all you knew about me. In fact, you'd probably know less about me in that regard. You'd probably say to your friend or, you know, your friend would probably say to you later, you could have introduced him a little bit differently rather than just tidying. And for those, that don't, for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Jeff Bennett. Privileged to be the lead pastor here at Harbor. And tidying is a small part of my job. But in the same way with Jesus, right? Jesus, we know he does so many different things and cared about so many different people and was involved in so much. But at times what we can do is elevate the small things and miss the main thing that Jesus was about. And so here's my hope and prayer for today. That just in, in that sense, as you were getting to know me, you would want to know what I was really about, what my role is here. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online and you're searching for the real Jesus and really want to know him, don't you want to know what he is truly about? And this is such an important question because in knowing Jesus and what he is about, and if he leads us to God, then we know how to find God if we know what Jesus is truly about. Too often, here's what's happened. We want to get Jesus on our side. You know, we've got a cause, we've got an idea, we've got something we want, and we say, okay, Jesus agrees with me. Here's my hope this morning, and my heart is we will see what Jesus is about, and we will say, Jesus, we want to be on your team. We want to be on your side. We're going to follow you and let you lead. So I sure hope you've got your Bibles because Jesus addresses this himself. It's Luke chapter 4. Please open them up, turn them on, so you can follow along with me. We're in the midst of a series called He Is Here. It's the beginning of the book of Luke, and Luke is introducing Jesus to us. He's been giving us his credentials, introduced by John the Baptist, audible voice at his baptism, genealogy, you know, the true son of God, the last Adam, and he, or the second Adam, and he does what the first Adam did not do, and that's what we talked about last week, overcomes the temptation there in the desert. And Luke is continuing on to introduce us to Jesus. And now he comes to the spot where he's going to tell us what Jesus was about, what his main purpose is. Jesus is going to begin his public ministry in Luke's gospel here. And so here's our outline for today. It's simply this, what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? The second question we'll answer then is this, who did Jesus come to reach? Who Jesus came to reach? And then the third question is simply this, how Jesus was received. So what Jesus came to do, who Jesus came to reach, and how Jesus was received. So Luke 14, we're down in verse 14. What I'm going to do is just walk through this story together with you, and we'll pause along the way and answer those three questions. So Luke 14, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it reads this way. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. So he's coming back to Galilee, where he was from. Uh, what has happened here, and you could mark this in your Bibles, between verse 13 and verse 14, there's a one-year gap in Jesus's ministry that Luke does not record, and neither do Matthew and Mark. But we know this from John. John often fills in the gaps that the other three don't record. 
And so in John, John chapter 1 through 4, Jesus is doing his Judean ministry, is what it's called. And now Luke is going to pick up with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And in verse 15, we see what this ministry was about. Verse 15, he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Here's sort of the overarching statement. What was Jesus doing? He was teaching. In fact, Luke says this 11 times. Jesus was teaching. And more times, Luke calls Jesus a teacher. So here's what we're seeing Luke is introducing us to. The pattern of Jesus' ministry. He came to teach or to preach. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, here's how Jesus said it. I can't stay here. I need to go and preach there also. This is why I have come. Why did you come, Jesus? To go other places and preach there. And so what Luke is highlighting here is the priority for Jesus was his teaching and his preaching ministry. And now what he's going to do is give us one example of this ministry, of Jesus' sermon, of what he taught, of what he said. It's one example. He's not going to give us all of his sermons. He's just going to give us one. Uh, Luke does the same thing in the book of Acts with Paul. He gives us example sermons of Paul, so we sort of know the general way Paul preached. And so now Luke... Uh, hones in on one synagogue experience in one town. And that's where we come to verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom, regular thing. This is what he was doing. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it had been, where it is written. So Jesus goes back to his hometown. He probably moved here when, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. He's been there for a, quite a while. Everyone knows him. He's been traveling for a year around Judea. They've heard the stories of the miracles he's done and what's beginning to happen. And there's a buzz around Jesus. And now he comes home and he goes to the synagogue. And, and I guess everyone, you know, wanted to see Jesus. They're sort of showing up. They know who he is. He gets handed the scroll. This would have been the custom for someone to read from the scrolls of the Old Testament. He gets handed the, the prophet, uh, the scroll of Isaiah, and then he begins to unroll it. You know, and he's looking for a specific place where now he is going to read. And so he finds his place, Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads these next two verses. Here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus goes back now, this is his sermon, back to Isaiah 61. And what everyone in that audience would have known is that Isaiah 61 and that whole portion of the book of Isaiah is a prophecy. Isaiah is written 700 years earlier, and he's prophesying, looking forward to a day of great jubilee, the jubilees of all jubilees. And the day that Isaiah is looking forward to is the day when God would come and save his people. 
It's the day when God would come and deliver his people. And everyone in Israel during this time would have had such hope in this day. One day the Messiah will come and save us and deliver us. One day, as Isaiah calls him, the suffering servant is going to come and it will be a day of great joy. And this is the scripture that Jesus reads. This is the sermon he preaches to talk about this Messiah, this suffering servant who with great hope and great joy is going to come and God is going to save his people. Then look what happens next. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. What is Jesus going to say? And then in verse 21, here's what he says. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone's looking at Jesus. He's just told them that one day there's going to be a great day where the Messiah comes, the suffering servant comes, where God is going to save his people. And now, look what Jesus is saying. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? The Messiah that Isaiah predicted 700 years ago, this great day of joy and salvation that Isaiah talked about, it's me. It's me. This scripture is now fulfilled in your presence. You know, sometimes people say, you know, Jesus was just a good man. He loved people and he did good things. This is one of the most radical claims of Jesus. He looks back 700 years to this great prophecy that everyone would have known. And he says, this is me. I am God in the flesh coming to save people from their sins. I've made this joke before, but it's appropriate again. If I this morning was to open up any place in the Old Testament and read about the Messiah and then comment, this is me. I would not finish the sermon, I don't think. The elders, rightly so, would come and usher me off the stage. That's not you, Jeff, in the Old Testament, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's this radical claim of focusing all attention on who he is and what he has come to do. So let's just pause here. What Jesus came to do. What do we learn from this passage? How is Jesus choosing this passage to introduce us to him and to his ministry? What did he come to do? Well, this passage has four verbs in it, four clear verbs that help us understand this. You'll see the verbs on the screen. I've circled them for you. What did Jesus come to do? He came to proclaim good news. He came to proclaim freedom. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Three of the four is the word proclaim. And then lastly, he came to set the oppressed free, to set free, or we might say to set at liberty. I'm, I'm going to come back to that set at liberty in a minute. But first, those first three, what's Jesus saying? I came to proclaim a message. What's the message? Who he is and what his purpose is. Why? He came to set people free, to deliver people. Interesting to note again, Go back to verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. See it there? In your hearing. 
Jesus is saying, I came to proclaim something from my mouth. You have now heard it to your ears. So this is fulfilled. What, what is fulfilled? That he has told people who he is and why he has come. This fits what we've already talked about. Jesus came as a teacher, as a preacher. And so what did Jesus come to do? He came to proclaim spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that there is salvation for sinners. And we look at this verse and we know that there are, when that good news ripples out, there's physical implications, there's social implications, there's medical implications, there's political implications. But here's what Jesus is saying. First and foremost, I came to proclaim who I am, that I have come to save sinners, and this will ultimately culminate in his work on the cross. This is what he taught. This is what he focused on. This is the centrality of his message. And it's important as we're going through Luke that we just pause here because at times it's often this text that's misused or misunderstood to promote Jesus doing medical ministry or ministry to the poor or justice or, um, you know, letting the oppressed rise up. We might call it liberation theology to be free. And I'm not saying Jesus doesn't speak of these things, and we'll see them play out later in Luke, but right now, Jesus is saying this. Here's the priority. Who I am and that I have come to fix the sin problem of people's hearts. What's more important than any physical thing, whether it be poverty or healing or injustice, is the spiritual of our lives. Jesus says our greatest need is not something in our physical world, not healing or a touch from God. Our greatest need is holiness before God. Anything physical ultimately traces back to a spiritual problem, to a spiritual source. Sin entered the world, and when sin entered the world, then all of these other things came. Sickness and poverty and justice and corruption, and the list goes on. But what Jesus marks here is he begins his ministry. The greatest problem that you and I face is that we are separated from God by our sin. And the greatest need we have is to be reconciled to our maker. Not to just, not to fix up what goes on in our world, but our greatest need is not healing from God, but holiness before God. If you followed sort of what happens in North American Christianity over the last 10 or 15 years, you know that there's being quite a lot written and spoken of that is calling the North American church back to this priority. Not only in our local ministry here in North America, but also as we would ponder what happens worldwide. Let me just give a couple of quotes from a couple of authors you'll see on the side screen. The first is from J.D. Payne in just a brand new book and that he's written. Here's what he writes. The body of Christ is diverse and rightly manifests diversity in ministry activities at home and abroad. My concern, however, is that the church, while involved in many important activities, may be neglecting a weightier matter. Without certainty and definition, the church drives through a fog, doing a multitude of activities, believing everything is fine. Actions and distractions are dangerous and often lead to taking the wrong highways and neglecting the expectations of Christ. 
What's the expectation of Christ? That we would be proclaiming the good news that he saves sinners. Here's how Andy Johnson in part of the Nine Marks series speaks to that. Here's what he says. Calling and discipling all the peoples saved by the Lamb is the primary mission. Whatever good things the church may choose to do, the great vision must be our fundamental objective and the joy towards which we labor. Would anything less be worthy of the one who came into the world to save sinners? Evangelism and establishing Christ's church is our first priority. So as we look here of Jesus, he steps on the stage and he says, this is what I have come to do. And that his priority should be our priority. You may wonder, is this necessary? Do we need to be talking about this? Isn't this generally agreed on? Isn't this the way this is being lived out in worldwide Christianity? J.D. Payne in his book talks about how our resources are spent. And you can often tell what you value, just generally the North American church, how resources are allocated. And here's the stat he gives. I find this hard to believe, but it's what he says in the book. There's 3.2 million people in the world who do not know the name of Jesus. I find that hard to believe, don't you? There's people that have never heard of Jesus, but that's what he says. And he says, now maybe it's they don't really know the true Jesus, right? And know what he's about, but 3.2 million people in the world. And then he says, how much of our financial resources are going into trying to teach, proclaim, let come out of our mouth to their ears so that they may hear who Jesus is? Here's what J.D. Payne says in his book. It's less than 0.1% of all Christian funding goes into actually the sharing of the gospel. And so I just share that as a reminder for us that oftentimes the priority that Jesus gives us, we have been lost and we are trying hard at Harbor to try to focus our mission efforts on places and people that do have never had an opportunity to hear the good news of Christ. There's also just a personal side of this. Later on at the end of the message, there's a great encouragement here for us as a church. But let me just give the challenge now. The challenge for me personally is I just see Jesus' priority, how he's so focused on this. It just challenged me to say, oh God, may I be more about your priority. May I be more about the gospel. As I see people and I see what's going on in their lives, may I see the greatest need that they have is the need for forgiveness of sin. And God, may you help me to be more about that and more passionate about what you prioritize. So that's our first question. What Jesus came to do. He came to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Second question, who did Jesus come to reach? Go back to the verse that he talks about there in Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 61. He names four types of people, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And here's what we know. We know that when Jesus comes and reverses the effects of sin, it plays itself out in all of these areas, poverty, imprisonment, blindness, oppression. But primarily, these are spiritual categories. Jesus is talking about if the primary need is he came to proclaim the gospel, the good news that God can reconcile us to himself, then each of these four must be seen as spiritual categories, not not necessarily literal. So God came or Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Who are the spiritually poor? They are those who come before God and recognize we are morally bankrupt. We are destitute. We bring nothing before God. Not our good works. We have nothing. We are utterly bankrupt when it comes to bringing any of our righteousness before God. And when we come in that state, 
He has good news for us. Now, here's the connection to the literal. Oftentimes, the economically poor, those who, have, who are under-resourced, God often uses that to cultivate spiritual sensitivity, to cultivate a greater desperation for spiritual things. We see that all around the world. And here's the other thing we see. Oftentimes, material wealth often works the other way. It can dampen our sense of need and, and, and insight into how spiritually poor we are. Here's the second group of people Jesus came for, the prisoners. And I said I would come back to that set at liberty or set free the prisoners of this list. This is actually the one thing that Jesus didn't do literally. He didn't actually ever set any prisoners free. And just to summarize a quick one story really quickly, this is where John the Baptist gets confused about Jesus. Because you remember John the Baptist is in jail and he sends word to Jesus. He's like, if you're the Messiah, why am I still not in jail? Right? You, you came to set the prisoners free, to let us out. Hey, you're the Messiah. Let me out. And he's doubting Jesus. Again, again, this is a very brief summary of all Jesus teaches John in that moment. But he's like, John, you don't quite understand the depth of what I've come for. And again, Jesus reminds him that these are spiritual activities that ultimately he has come for. The third group of people, the blind, the spiritually blind. And here's what we know. Before we meet Christ, we don't see the world, we don't see others, we don't see ourselves, we don't see God properly. And the greatest miracle God ever does is open our eyes to see him and see what he's done for us on the cross. Now, as we go through the book of Luke, Jesus is literally going to heal some blind people. And it's, way, it's, way, it's his way of saying, here's what I'm doing in the physical world, but it's actually what I want to do in the spiritual world world. It's an, it's an example. It's an illustration. It's a collaboration. And then lastly, who does Jesus want to work with? The oppressed. Those who overwhelmed, carrying a heavy burden, weighed down because of sin. And again, we see this play out. Even next week, we'll talk about it, uh, not extensively, but we'll talk about it a little bit more than, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. Next week, casting out demons and uh, how we find spiritual freedom in Christ and how Jesus illustrates that in regards to demon possession and setting people free. So who did Jesus come to reach? Well, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the free. But then he goes on, he continues to explain this to the people because he want to make sure they understand it. They know who he came for here in Nazareth. And so in verse 22, look what he says. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked, you hear what they're saying? Well, we, we knew you, you're, you're Joseph's son. You grew up here. And now you're making these audacious claims about who you are and how we need you and how you've come to be the Messiah and set us free. How can this be the case? And so Jesus begins to speak into their lack of belief in him. You know, we have that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. That's what's happening here. And so Jesus then in verse 23, here's what he says. Jesus says to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. See, the people want a sign, and he knows they want him to do something spectacular, you know, so they will believe in him. But here's what Jesus is saying. The test of a prophet is what, in, is what he says, and not in the sign that he gives. 
And so now Jesus is going to give them two examples to try to move them towards seeing their spiritual need, their need for him. And so let me just read. He gives, I'm going to do this quickly, but two examples here in verse 24 to 27. Here's what he says. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus now gives examples of two people. One is a woman who's very poor. And the prophet Elijah goes to her. She receives God's blessing, God's salvation. The second one is the total opposite of the woman. The woman. He's a man, he's rich, he's wealthy, but also he receives God's blessing and even more God's salvation. He was cleansed, not just healed. We'll talk about that in future weeks as well. So here's what these two people had in common. They didn't have gender in common. Uh, they didn't have their economic status in common, but they both knew they need to humble themselves. They both knew they need to humble themselves to receive what God was offering. If you remember the story of Naaman, he had to go and dip himself seven times in the Jordan River. It wasn't particularly a nice river, but when he humbled himself and did that, he was healed. He was cleansed. And Elijah, or, uh, and sorry, and Jesus is saying here, the ones that receive me are the ones that sense their need, are the ones that are humble enough to admit that they need me. And in fact, what he's saying here is those closest to God in Israel during Elijah and Elisha's time, they missed what God had for them and those far away, they received it. Why did the ones close miss it? Because they didn't humble themselves. Why did the ones far away receive it? Because they did humble themselves. So who did Jesus come to reach? He came to reach the humble. He came to reach the spiritually broken. He came to reach those who recognize their need for him. And so this morning, here's the good news. If you've attended here today or you're watching online and you're wondering, is Jesus for you? Is Jesus for you? I can give you a resounding yes. He is for you. If you would admit in your humility that you are spiritually broken, if you're at the end of your rope, if you're finished, if you have nowhere left to turn, if you are weary and heavy laden, if you're poor and spiritually a prisoner, if you're spiritually blind and oppressed, then Jesus has come for you. And so, as you would mark that today, the greatest need you have is your spiritual poverty. The greatest need you have is your spiritual blindness. And if you know now that Christ has come for you in that state, wouldn't you then come to him? He has good news for you. He can open your eyes. He can set you free. Wouldn't you come to him this morning? That is the call of Christ. That's what he came to solve the greatest problem we have, which is our sin problem. Wouldn't you come to him? For others of you, you've come to him but you still know this has been a hard week, a hard month, a hard year. You're weary, you're burdened, 
you're at the end of your rope. And again, this is a little bit broader application, but Jesus invites us all to come to him. Wouldn't you come to him this morning, even with your needs and just cry out to him? That's who Jesus came to reach. But let me just say one other thing. And this is important to say in an audience like this, where probably many of you have spent many years in church as I have, or growing up with a Christian heritage. It's interesting to note in this story, who misses Jesus? Who misses him? Those who knew him the best. Those who were closest to Jesus had the hardest time seeing who he really was. And at times, what can happen when we spend time in church or time in a Christian heritage, we can become too familiar with Jesus. We can become too casual with him. We can become too comfortable with him. And it just becomes about outside activity, sort of looking good. But on the inside, we recognize that we are spiritually empty. And so as I have tried to share today what Jesus was about that he came for the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the free. If that does not thrill your heart because you don't see yourself in that category, you don't see yourself as, as one day having been poor and blind and needing of freedom, then would you just, would I invite you to go back and look more at Jesus? And as you hear what he was about, may that message thrill your heart. May you say, Jesus, help me see again all that you have come to do, and may it fill my heart. Jesus is worth what he has done. Is we worth it to give our entire lives to? Those who give everything to Jesus lose nothing. And as we're reminded of his purpose, we again should say, God, well up in me a love for you to want to follow after you. So that's who Jesus came to reach. Third question. How was Jesus received? How was he received? I said at the beginning, everyone loves Jesus. Not true. We think it's true. The people in this story did not like him and they grew up with him. Remember what he said, right? The outsiders are going to get the blessing and you insiders are going to miss it unless you humble yourself and admit your need for me. Look down to verse 28. Here's how it goes over. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. You may say, well, how do you really know this is what Jesus was saying? I know this is what he was saying because they were so angry about it. They were insulted by it. Their spiritual pride was insulted. Then look at verse 29. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And so this is, you know, them sort of feeling like Jesus has declared himself a false prophet. And so therefore he can be executed on site without a trial. But it's also their pride welling up. Who are you to tell us that you're the Messiah, that we are spiritually broken and, and we need, you know, you to give us sight and, and help and good news. And they take him off to the outside of the cliff. Then verse 30, and I wish Luke would give us a little more information here. And this is how he ends the story. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You're like, well, Luke, what just happened there? You know, could we just fill that in? Just one short phrase would have been really nice. Is it a miracle? We don't know. Again, somehow they get out to the cliff and then Jesus just returns and walks into the village. But the one thing Luke does tell us is this. Jesus went on his way. And what Luke is hinting at here is what we know, Jesus is on a divinely led journey. 
And it will end in his death, but not being thrown off a cliff, but nailed to a cross and crucified. How was Jesus received? Not well. For any of you that have preached a sermon, this is Jesus' first sermon recorded by Luke. I don't think it went this poorly for you. But when we see Jesus, how he was received, how he was treated, and eventually what will happen to him, here's, what, here's the encouragement for I think so many of you today, and this is one thing I so appreciate about so many of you who call Harbor home. So many of you have been about the gospel over the course of your life. You have been about this. You've tried to live out Jesus's priority. You've tried to care for people in a way to communicate Jesus's truth. You've prayed for people that he would open their eyes. You've invited people. You've sought in your own way to share the gospel with them. Many of you have worked hard at this to have the same priority as Jesus. You know you have not done it perfectly, as I know. You know you're still learning, as I am. But you have tried to have the same priority of Jesus. And here's what's happened to you. As you have tried to live out this priority, you've been ridiculed, excluded, put down, misunderstood, and misinterpreted. And here's my news today. If you choose to be about the gospel, this is what happens. If you choose to make this your priority, this is the one thing that people don't like about Jesus. And we are ridiculed, excluded, put down, misunderstood. Just think of Jesus. Could anyone be a better teacher than him? If he was here, we would all gladly sit and listen for as long as he would talk to anything he would say. No one could teach better than him. His love and his compassion, his miracles, what I said at the beginning, everyone loved Jesus. But yet ultimately they hated him and crucified him. Why? Because he was about this message that ultimately we need to humble ourselves and turn from him, turn to him. And so today, if you have experienced in a small measure what Christ experiences and what we see here, may you be encouraged. Here's how it's encouraged me. As I've looked at this passage and thought of Christ coming to this earth, here he comes with this great good news message. He knows we're poor. He knows we're blind. He knows we're oppressed. And he's come to bring this good news, to give us sight, to set us free. And look how he is treated. Look how he's received. And I look at that personally, and I say, Christ, you did so much for me. And we look at that collectively, and we say, Christ, you have done so much for us. You did all of this. You came with this message, and look what happened to you. And you knew it was going to happen, and you willingly walked along your way. And then here's how I reflect on that. In comparison to what Christ has done for me, I would say this, I've done so little for him. I've done so little for him. And I think you would reflect in the same way and we could say it together. In comparison to what Christ has done for us, we have done so little for him. But yet, in that reality, Christ does give us an opportunity to stand for him to stand for his gospel. And anytime you've been ridiculed, excluded, put down, misunderstood, misinterpreted, that's a little thing that you've been able to stand with Christ and say, Christ, you did all of this for me. And thank you for the opportunity that I can do this small thing for you. And as you would see that this morning, may you be encouraged to keep making the main thing the main thing and keep standing with Christ 
and being about the gospel. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, we want to know who you are. And in doing so, we want to know what you're about. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that you would humble us to see our great need for you, our poverty, our blindness, our oppression. And, oh, God, as we see that, Lord, for the person who has never received that, may they run to you today and take the life and the freedom and the forgiveness that you offer. And then, God, for many of the rest of us, Lord, as we see all that you did for us, Lord, may you fill our hearts with such joy, such love for you, Lord, that, that we, Lord, that you would fill us, Lord, with the courage to keep being about the gospel, keep living, Lord, for the same priority that you had. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. And God, we rejoice in any opportunity, Lord, any small suffering that we incur because of that, Lord, and we glory in that. God, we thank you for that opportunity to serve you and love you in that way. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. We uh, end each service with four words. And so I'll end with these, I'll end with a verse and then the four words that send us out. But this is Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Knowing that in the Lord, our labor is never in vain. Harbor. We are sent.